0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you
1: The Big Sister Hotline is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty of these lands has never been ceded. I pay my respects to elders past and present. The Hotline is proud to be an ongoing supporter of JIRA, an Aboriginal-controlled community organisation where culture is shared and celebrated. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal and Black Lives Matter. Big Sister Hotline, how can we help? Hello, dear listeners, guys, gals, and non-binary pals, and welcome back to Season 2 of the Big Sister Hotline, a weekly podcast offering frank, funny, and feminist advice on life, love, and whether or not you should break up with your no-good Nick boyfriend. Spoiler, the answer is always yes. Yes. I'm your host Clementine Ford, author of the books Fight Like a Girl and Boys Will Be Boys and currently writing the forthcoming memoir How We Love. My guest this week is Laura Bates, a UK-based writer, activist and trailblazer working to end men's violence against women. Laura is the founder of the Everyday Sexism Project and the author of Everyday Sexism, the Sunday Times bestseller Girl Up, Misogynation and The Burning. She writes regularly for The Guardian and The New York Times and is also the recipient of a British Press Award. Her latest book, Men Who Hate Women, is a blistering look at the ways in which men operate in communities to perpetrate and perpetuate misogyny and violence against women. It's brutal, terrifying, and absolutely necessary for everyone to read. Laura joined me to talk about the numerous issues raised in her book, and I want to use this opportunity to issue a very big content note and trigger warning for our discussion. It contains numerous references to abuse, rape and sexual violence, and murder. Parts of this conversation will not be easy to listen to, so please go gently with yourselves. And if nothing else, I strongly recommend you get the men in your lives to listen, because we need them to understand the truth of what women have been saying for generations. Laura Bates, welcome to the Big Sister
2: Hotline. Thank you for having me.
1: I've followed your work for years, but just for people who may be becoming familiar with you now, could you just give a little bit of a background, please, to what you were doing before this and what led you to write Men Who Hate Women?
2: Sure. Um, In 2012, I started a really simple project called the Everyday Sexism Project, which aimed to crowdsource people's experiences of any kind of gender inequality. And the purpose of it was to try and force people to acknowledge the reality of the problem, because it felt like we were living in a situation where it was impacting on people's daily lives, mostly women's daily lives on a daily basis. And yet there was this kind of social attitude of sexism doesn't exist anymore. Women are equal now. There is no problem. So it was a very, very simple idea to kind of raise awareness and force people to confront the problem. Um, But it took off in a way I hadn't anticipated. And hundreds of thousands of people used the project to share their stories, which meant that we suddenly had the largest data set of its kind that had ever been collected. So I started trying to take the data and to use it in a really targeted way beyond awareness raising offline. So, for example, taking the stories that we'd received from children at school about sexual violence to... um, Um, ministers who were making decisions about the education curriculum to argue that they should have uh, mandatory lessons about consent and healthy relationships Or using the data that just come from women being sexually assaulted or harassed on tubes or buses to work with the British Transport Police to change the way that they dealt with sexual offenses and to retrain their officers and it kind of spiraled from there really but a lot of my work focused on young people because a huge number of the entries we received came from children from girls under the age of 18 in particular Um, And that meant that I started doing a lot of work in schools directly, going into schools and talking to young people about the kind of stories we were seeing and about everything from gender stereotyping to the treatment of women in the media and so on. And over the next almost decade, I travelled to maybe two schools a week all over the country um, and I was seeing a real cross-section of young people and their ideas and their attitudes And there was a real shift, I would say, about two, two and a half years ago, where suddenly the responses from boys in particular changed. And suddenly, of course, there had always been kind of pushback and difficult conversations and awkwardness, and that was to be expected and welcomed. But suddenly, I was hearing from boys who were coming out with really extreme and very entrenched beliefs that were extreme misogyny. So real hatred of women, um, false statistics, the idea that uh, men are the vast majority of victims of domestic abuse, the idea that almost every woman um, who says she's been raped is lying, um, the idea that white men are the real threatened victims in our society and that there's a feminist conspiracy at the heart of our government seeking to destroy them. And I recognized these ideas and these tropes because I think, as a woman working online, particularly as a feminist. Mm you come into contact with these communities who very deliberately spread these particular myths and who also target individual women for abuse. And for a long time, I think there was an argument that these communities didn't deserve the oxygen of publicity, that there was a danger in talking about them, and I was quite sympathetic to that argument. But what I suddenly started seeing that really worried me was that actually these communities were incredibly successfully radicalising boys, and that is absolutely what it is. It's radicalization and grooming but nobody knew it was happening. These kind of specific groups, which actually, the more I looked into it, have carried out um, murders and rapes. Over 100 people have been killed or injured by them in the last 10 years alone. They are not on the radar of any kind of um, counter-terrorism organization, of any government, of any anti-radicalization scheme that's helping young people. And I suddenly realized if they're having this effect on so many boys, maybe we do need to talk about them so we can see what the problem is. And that's what led me to write the book. Mm.
1: You know reading this book it for me in particular I think that your experience of that of all of this has been much more amplified than mine but so much of it in fact all of it was just incredibly familiar to me from the trolling that you write about that you've received personally to you know wading through incel groups to wading through men's rights groups and even to the experience of going into schools and speaking with students and recognising that shift. What's so great about it is that you do structure it so much in terms of the silos in which these men operate. So you have men who hate women and that's looking at incel ideology. You have men who hound women and that's looking at trolls, men who blame women and that's looking at men's rights activists. And what I think is so powerful about it is that the chapter about boys in schools is right at the end because for me that nails that exactly what you're saying about no one wanting to talk about this or thinking well don't give it any oxygen you know starve it as if somehow ignoring it has as if somehow ignoring abuse has ever made it go away for women but actually you keep bringing it back to the source or, or, or rather to what we should be concerned about which is that if it's taking root in our children this is where we need to kind of cut it off at the knees, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's it's so nice to talk to you about this because the experience of talking about this book and writing about it is quite, it kind of feels like this mass sort of gaslighting experience and I don't mean to use that lightly but it really does feel like you're talking about this this mass terror group essentially and almost everywhere you go people have never heard of it. They're going what and mm. an, in in what like is it a kind of battery and so to talk to someone who knows and who's experienced yeah. it and is aware of it is kind of a massive relief. Um, it it's really shocking. I mean, during the research for the book, I would be I would be ringing up kind of major uh, counter terror groups working for various different governments. And you'd start talking to them about the kind of measures they're taking to track different forms of radicalization and extremism. And then you'd use the word incels and it would just go quiet at the other end of the line and, and they would go in. Sorry, can you repeat that? And it's this really shocking thing of realizing that you know there are there are government accountability reports in the US for example that cover a period in which over 30 people have been murdered by incels and they don't then they don't appear on the report even though it goes into great depth tracking and looking at animal rights extremism in the name Mm -hmm. of which nobody had been injured during that period so it's it's a real relief to talk to someone who kind of has seen it and and been aware of it because I think you're so right these things particularly when they affect women particularly when there's a sense that they have their origins online they're almost universally belittled and dismissed and people just really in the sort of wider community this whole mass Complex ecosystem is boiled down to one word: troll. In most people's minds, and it's a slightly comical, slightly pathetic figure of someone in their mum's basement who would never actually hurt anyone in real life, and it's just to be pitied. And that's terrifying. Mm. It's interesting that you mentioned gaslighting because I was telling
1: someone about this book today, and I said I feel like this book could have been called gaslight, because again, that that experience is so familiar to me. Not just telling people about it and having them say, what, incel? And we will talk a minute, uh, we will go into what an incel is in a minute for anyone who may not be familiar with that term. But it's not just about people being unaware of these things. It's coming up against, once again, the backlash from or the memory for me reading this book, the memory of all of the times that, you know, the most recent of which, which was today, that you talk about these things and men in particular, although sometimes women doing the work of patriarchy, insist to you that it's not real, that none of this is happening and that even if it were happening, well, don't you know that women do it too? I I, I went to my Facebook page today and I shared an image of your book and I said, I, I am challenging the men who follow this page to buy this book and read it and really... You know, back up your claims that you make, that you love women, that you want to protect the women in your life. I mean, leaving aside the kind of paternalistic aspects of protection, back it up because until you read this book and engage with the topic as it actually is, your words are meaningless. And, of course, even with that, comments after comment came in from men who insisted that this was not real, that they weren't like this, that women do it too, and i thought that you know it's very little surprises me now when it comes to people actively disengaging from this content and from this topic but the fact that the book's not even called all men hate women <laughs> it's about specifically about groups of men who hate women and even that is so frightening to people mm-hmm. that this is one of the things that i really struggle with in terms of just that kind of naivety that still lives within you that it's 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 so infuriating to me that we live in a world in which we are gaslit into into accepting or being told at least that men would bend over backwards to, quote, unquote, protect women, that if I ever saw men abusing women, I would step in and I would say something and I would do something about it. And yet time after time you and I both know that the opposite is true, that they don't want to talk about it, they don't want to engage with it. And when you say things like, uh, you know, misogyny and incels, and you know, men like Paul Elam who weaponize these groups against women to perpetrate violence against women. These are terrorist groups. You're met with people who either say that you're being ridiculous or who are kind of wishy-washy on the fence and say well we agree that it's it's wrong but terrorism's the wrong term to use for it because as i've been told Laura terrorism is about furthering a political ideology mm-hmm. as if somehow there's nothing political about <laughs> men wanting to prevent women from rising
2: up Right. It's so true. And I think it's not an accident that you have that sense that there is such resistance to it, because the more I realized, as I, the more I researched the book, the more I realized how cleverly those narratives of subduing and preempting any kind of resistance are are actively being pushed, not only by these groups themselves, but also by kind of conduits, if you like, people who act as bridges between these really extreme online communities and the mainstream media and our politics. It's really shocking when you start to realise how many mainstream politicians, and actually this is particularly an issue in Australia, are meeting Mm -hmm. actively with members of these groups and then going on to form policy, to make policy choices and suggestions based on the myth and mythology that these groups are kind of spouting and even repeating verbatim some of their propaganda. And or you've got mainstream media programs who respond to these kinds of issues in a really problematic way that then perpetuates the misconceptions amongst the general public. So in the UK, for example, we've got some of our most respected um, broadcasters and public programming um, on the Me Too movement, for example, asking, isn't this a witch hunt against men? And should men be scared? You know, you've got the president of the United States for crying out loud saying this is a very scary time to be a young man mm. in America. And so you end up with the society where people are much more predisposed to all of those attitudes that you've just listed. You know, oh, I don't know this. Y- 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 it sounds like maybe you've gone a bit too far or you must be exaggerating a bit. Or there's, you know, actually there's a side to the story. Story that I'm not familiar with. And it's really, I think, the fact that we're not used to. Um recognizing that white men can act as a group we're not comfortable with that in our society you know we are so happy to homogenize and generalize about other groups but we afford white men this kind of privilege of discrete identities and so the idea that they as a block might be acting and and of course we're talking about a specific group of white men not all white men but the, the idea that that might be a group is that something that is so uncomfortable for people even to begin to discuss that it's really hard to get people to even be prepared to have the conversation. And even when these groups commit terrorist acts, the media doesn't call them that. So you're four times more likely to hear about a terrorist act committed by someone who isn't white in the first place anyway. But most people will have heard of some of the terrorist acts carried out by these men. They might have heard of the Toronto van attack, for example. Most people are familiar with that, but very few people know that that was a terrorist act explicitly targeting killing and injuring the vast majority of the victims being women by an attacker who explicitly said that he was acting in the name of hatred of women because the media and even the police force came out and said this is there's no evidence of terrorism here the city Mm. is safe they said even though he was sitting in an interview room telling officers that he'd been radicalized online and wanted to be the next Elliot Roger the next incel killer so it's kind of no surprise then that you have everyday people going well it's not really terrorism is it because that's literally what the police the media and politicians are telling them
1: well so let's use the example of Alec Manassian to get into incel ideology so we can explain to listeners who may not be familiar with it what incels are and then talk about um really that you know the deep-seated hatred that is prevalent
2: within that ideology so can you just explain please what incel is Sure. So incels are a group who um, term themselves as involuntarily celibate. In other words, they're not having sex, and they want to be. And they blame women for that. They believe that women owe them sex, that it's their kind of entitlement, their birthright as men, and specifically as white men, these are overwhelmingly white groups. Um, And there's, it's, I think, impossible to talk about them without recognising that there's a huge crossover between these groups and white supremacists, who also have a huge obsession with the idea of, birth rates, the idea of replacement theory, the idea that essentially white women are a kind of a completely dehumanized, fragile commodity to be used for the purpose of propagation, to be used for the purpose of creating a kind of master white race, the idea that black women should be forcibly sterilized, the idea that men of color are kind of invading savages. You cannot take those two concepts and and extricate them from each other. So that's really important to say, I think. Um, They are men who believe that as punishment for the fact that they aren't getting sex, women who entirely have all of the power and control politically and socially in the world should be punished. And they fantasize en masse about raping and murdering women in what they describe as a day of retribution when incels will rise up and punish women by murdering them. And if this sounds extreme and shocking, and automatically, I think, you assume I must be talking about a few dozen men. We are talking here about groups where it is a sprawling network of these groups. There are blogs, there are communities, there are networks, there are chat rooms. I investigated so many of these groups for the book, hundreds of separate incel groups and websites and forums. And a single one, for example, had membership of 100,000 people. Another had a membership of 17,500 people. There, A single one of these groups had 5 million posts. Many of them shared fantasies about raping and maiming and murdering women. They share images of women being brutally killed. They post photographs of real women they know and ask for advice on how to rape them. And I'm really sorry to be so explicit, but I think it's really important because part of the problem is that people have no idea just how bad it is. And that's what we're talking about. That's the severity and that's the kind of size of the community we're discussing. And this is Mm -hmm. just one of the communities looked at in the book. So that gives you a bit of an idea of the scale. To me, one of the things that's most frightening about incel
1: ideology is not just the men who operate within it, who have this incredible level of entitlement. And it's not really, I mean, from my uh, from my perspective, it is an entitlement to women's bodies, but it's also, and I'm sure you would agree with this based on your book, it's this terrible fury that somehow other men are succeeding in a patriarchy in ways that they aren't, that mm-hmm. they're being denied you know, so people often say, well, they'll they'll discount Elliot Roger, for example, who's considered, you know, he's spoken of as being the supreme gentleman within incel circles. They'll discount his actions as being misogynist because they'll say they're always looking for excuses. They're always looking for ways to make men not be bad or not be, you know, capable of these things. But they'll say, well, he can't have been driven by misogyny because he killed men too. Mm-hmm. but as you as you point out he killed men who he felt furious were having experiences that he he thought belonged to him and that he was being denied somehow so it's it's that tussle as well between you know where you sit on the hierarchy of male power and one of the things that i find really um galling i guess is that but also incredibly worrying and this is where i think that you know, people can dismiss these things as saying, well, even if it's 100,000 people, how many billions of men are in the world? You know, it's Mm -hmm. not all of us, not all men, not all men. You think, okay, but we're all part of a system and maybe not, maybe the vast majority of men are not operating actively in those incel circles, but I can tell you that I came across a lot of men who move through society normally who when Elliot Roger killed those people in Isla Vista and when Alec Manassian plowed his van into those people, they said things like, Well, you know, maybe women should have gone on dates with them.
2: Yeah, I maybe think it's maybe it's women's fault. It's it's so it, there's such a trickle down effect here right like so the first thing is that there are so many men who have taken on some of the aspects of these ideologies in a much more diluted form because they are very deliberately kind of smuggled into the mainstream um via kind of memes and and funny content on youtube and then very very public figures who have massive chat shows for example without naming any names and so um you end up having men in the general public where these ideas are made so much more normalized and palatable and kind of excusable and so then you get to this point where you have a kind of tiny or it's considered a kind of tiny fringe internet group like men going their own way who believe that you should have no contact with any woman in any way and yet you suddenly realize that 27 percent of american men now follow that ideology to an extent in that 27 percent of american men now say that they won't have meetings one-to-one with women in the workplace because you might get falsely accused of something. And that's a really good statistic, I think, for just showing just how widespread some of these views have become. Even if they're one step removed from the source of these online communities, they're still incredibly effective in terms of how widespread and therefore how acceptable that rhetoric is becoming. But of course, there's also a huge number of men who wouldn't engage in these particular ideas. And my argument then is, that's fantastic. But that doesn't mean we can't talk about it. And often, Mm. these are the same people who are so quick to spew Islamophobic rhetoric, you know, they're very happy to see all Muslims as a group when we're talking about another kind of terrorist attack. So and yet, they find it very difficult to recognize that, you know, that's exactly the same thing. Like, no, we're not saying that all white men are committing these acts or have these ideologies, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be able to talk about it. This is a really serious issue.
1: And nor should we be distracted constantly by the demand that we provide that disclaimer. We shouldn't have to initiate every conversation about the staggering numbers of men who kill, hurt, rape, and harm women With that disclaimer of, well, we know that it's not all of them who do it. Like that should, let's just take that as read. And yet, the fact that so many men who claim to be allies and in support of, you know, if not feminism, then in support of equality in some way, the fact that they still require that disclaimer to be given to them in order for them to feel comfortable in the conversation is very telling about where their entitlement sits on the spectrum, too. Uh, And Hannah Gadsby did that great piece about the line, you know, men setting the line. And if men determine where the line is between good and bad, then they can always decide which side of the line they sit on. One thing I've observed, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, is that when women speak about these issues, of course, we know what the, uh, the backlash involves. And you and I have received some horrific emails, messages, et cetera. I always think that, If that's the sort of stuff that, you know, women who have a platform to expose it are receiving, then what are teenage girls being subjected to, you know, where they have have to stay silent about a lot of it. Um, But it's not so acceptable when we speak out about it because the men, even the ones who consider themselves to be, quote, unquote, the good guys, they don't have any control over those conversations. They can't determine that line and say, well, of course, I'm on the side of good. And that's why I can speak about how terrible these things are. It suddenly becomes a lot, um, I, th- I think that a lot of men experience a degree of insecurity and paranoia when it's women speaking about these things because all of a sudden there may be something in their behaviour that is pointed out, that they've done, that they secretly know about, that they might have to sit with and reckon with.
2: I think that that is a really, um, a really gritty touch point for these communities to then grab onto. I think if you look at a lot of the backlash to Me Too, it focused on this idea of they might come for you next. You know, are you really safe? If women are speaking out about this stuff, what have you done that might come up? And it's a really clever narrative because it basically flips on its head the reality. It turns the group who are oppressed into the oppressors. And it kind of, it's a very seductive narrative, I think, in a moment of public reckoning for people who are having to kind of examine their own privilege. And we've seen the same response to Black Lives Matter protests as well, Mm -hmm. to try desperately to kind of prevent those people from speaking out by striking fear into the dominant group and making them think like, oh, I might have to look at my own privilege, this is uncomfortable, so I should shut this conversation down. And it's incredibly effective because it, it uses fear, which is such a powerful motivator, I think. And mm-hmm. and you're so right that that particular conversation for men then becomes a conversation of of real discomfort and that that's a really difficult thing to sit with, I think, as you say.
1: I found your chapter on the men's rights activists, men who blame women, I found that particularly interesting because, of course, you write about Paul Elam, who's the founder of A Voice for Men, which is one of the, if not the biggest men's rights websites in the world, and it sits really neatly in with your exposure of a lot of these guys who occupy levels of status, um, you know, whether in an, in online communities or by doing the speaking circuit, that for a lot of them it's actually a big financial grift. Mm-hmm. Where they're profiting off of <sighs> what are in lots of cases, I mean, not every man who's attracted to the pickup artist movement, for example, is there because he's purely a misogynist. As you say, a lot of them are just kind of lonely, insecure men with low self-esteem who think that what they're signing up for is something that will teach them how to communicate with women better. I mean, that's a generous reading of a lot of them, I think, but I I do feel that that is true for at least a proportion of them. And yet there are these men there who – Um, claim positions at the top like Paul Elam or Roosh, or, uh, you know, Julian Blanc who was famously kicked out of Australia or had his visa denied. Um, And they're profiting off of it because for them it's a game and they they can exploit the very men who are looking to them for some form of liberation. They will exploit them. And what I found interesting about Paul Elam was, you know, his whole shtick is that, he fights for deadbeat dads and, you know, women, women, the court system is feminized and, you know, women steal the children, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm not sure if you read that piece in BuzzFeed about him, that he's a deadbeat dad himself. You know, he walked away from his family and then after a reconciliation was kind of thrown away from his family again because his daughter who'd reconciled with him saw him slap her child. So he's, he's not even espousing views that he claims to be representing, but he is profiting a lot.
2: Yeah, I think there is a real exploitation within these communities. And the men at the top are profiting by doubling down on exactly the societal issues that are harming the people who are then being driven to them. So you're right, it's so complex. There are a huge number of very vulnerable, exploited, unhappy men in these communities, some of whom have mental health problems, some of whom have massive disadvantages and issues in their own lives. And some of them are the most vulnerable vulnerable people to being preyed upon online and I think it's so important to recognize the complexity of those communities because we can recognize that those men exist within them without what is often done which is giving a kind of blanket excuse to the whole community and going oh incels are just poor men who you know are very unlucky in their lives and we should feel sorry for them like that's not what I'm saying there are a huge number of men in there who do know what they're doing who are explicitly extremist misogynist who are advocating sexual violence but caught up in that are the these men who are themselves harmed explicitly by a world in which they are told boys don't cry, men are tough and manly, you have to have power, you have to fulfill these specific stringent criteria for being a man. And in many cases, that's what's created the very kind of vulnerability that has sent them in search of answers online in the first place. And the most tragic thing to see is that they then come across the paths of men in these kind of groups, the kind of leaders that you, you've described who end up exploiting them by instead of saying there's another way, this isn't the only way to be a man, you know, the kind of, things that might actually help and support them, instead they double down, they go, You're right, men have to be in control and in power. And you should hate women because they're the ones stopping us from doing this. And specifically feminists, because if it weren't for women's liberation, we would all be fine. You could almost boil down every manosphere ideology to that. If only women were still chattel, if only they could be our sex slaves and have no kind of political or distinct ideology or any kind of distinct like persona or power over themselves. Um, then we'd be okay. And what that does is it absolutely reiterates exactly the problems that have pushed those men there in the first place. It's really Mm -hmm. tragic. And I guess what that means is that we have to look at ways to try and break out of that. We have to look at ways to try and provide different opportunities, different conversations, different meeting places, different communities offline, particularly for the younger men who are very vulnerable to these ideologies and find them attractive. Because it isn't a coincidence in the UK, for example, I think that we've seen so so many men being sucked into this at the same time that we've seen massive cuts to youth centers and to kind of offline spaces for young men to gather in real life and if these spaces are giving them a sense of community and purpose and resolve then we need to look at ways to provide that in a healthier way offline if we want to tackle it in a meaningful way i think mm. Mm.
1: one of the things that concerns me the most uh you know on a personal level as well because i have a four year old son is just knowing how easily those boys slip through the cracks. You have a couple of really interesting examples through the book of young men who, I guess you could say, sort of dipped a toe into the world of either pickup artistry or in seldom or men's rights activism. And then, thank goodness, somehow events kind of conspired within their lives to give them a sense of purpose or some level of self-esteem that really drew them out of those communities again so that they could see what they were, see them in their entirety. But those stories seem to be very rare mm-hmm. or rare enough that there's not a, there's not so many men speaking out. And I'm not sure if you listened to the New York Times podcast series Rabbit Hole, but Rabbit Hole was a six-part series, the radicalization of young men, not necessarily just into men's rights activism, but the radicalization of young white men in particular on YouTube and in Mm. online spaces. And you talk about the the way the algorithm on YouTube works so that, you know, you set your computer up in the book as an experiment. You set it up so you cleared your cache completely. You had no uh, kind of online footprint. And you just plugged into YouTube, what is feminism? And then you followed the rabbit hole down. And this is what the, the rabbit hole podcast finds as well, is that very quickly this one simple question or something like it suddenly has these young men being exposed to views from men like Stefan Molino, who's a white supremacist, um, quack psychologists like Dr. Jordan Peterson, who, as you, as you point out in your book, people trust because he has a PhD, but not in the fields in which he's speaking. And in my experience here in Australia, one of the things that scares me the most is going into schools and seeing how boys as young as 14 and 15 are, as you say, parroting back these falsehoods. These boys speak with such extreme levels of confidence about issues that they really don't understand, yet they feel they've they've got all these facts for because they've watched a lot of hours of YouTube. And I've stopped speaking in schools primarily because uh, whenever I do, I leave and I spend the next 24 hours being horribly trolled by the students. And it's it's always been incredibly demoralizing to me because when I go to the schools and I say, look, this is unacceptable behavior, they're really not interested in doing much about it. Everyone tiptoes around young boys and it leaves me to wonder, yes, okay, we want to mold them and we want to have empathy and we want to intervene, but at what point will we actually intervene why Why are grown women like you and I having to deal with this level of backlash when we've been invited to speak as experts in our field? And as I said earlier, if we're dealing with it, what are girls who go to
2: school with them every day having to put up with? Absolutely. And in fact, something I really recognize as well, what I often experience is speaking in a school and then having an email or a message from a girl at that school after I've left saying, this is what happened after you left. I vividly remember one particular school I spoke at where we were talking about feminism. And it was interesting because the school had asked us to have a smaller discussion group with just the girls and it was only the girls in the room. And there was one girl in that school who was brave enough to say that she was a feminist and she was just very very gently and calmly debunking some of the stuff that the others were coming out with you know things like um in that particular session they said things like well you know women love playing with babies so why should companies have to pay for them to do that you know i don't understand why maternity leave should be paid it was that kind of level and this girl was kind of very calmly saying "Hmm, well you know and giving some ideas and afterwards she wrote to me and said the girls who had been in that session went out of it and told the boys that she was a man hating hairy feminist and She then sent me some of the messages she'd received from boys in her year subsequently. And it was things like, you know, it's not our fault. Men are just biologically better than women. And you just have to accept that. Like, we can't help that we are just preordained to be superior to you. You know, it's not your fault. You have a different brain. It's just not so good at certain Mm -hmm. things. And this is the level of kind of belief that crystallizes in these, that these teenage boys genuinely had come to believe that that was simply fact, that they were sort of gently breaking to this girl. Yeah. <laughs> And I think it does just let you see how ingrained these things have become. I think for me, the answer is okay. it's too late to talk to them at 16. It's too late if they've already spent years on YouTube being radicalized, because it is, again, it is radicalization. We'd call it radicalization if it was any other form of extremism, but we don't in this case. But that's what it is. And everybody, all the experts agree that de radicalization is an incredibly difficult and intricate process that requires huge amounts of resources and skills that you know every single school in the country absolutely doesn't have but if we could prevent the radicalization happening in the first place that would be far more effective so I think for me the answer is go and talk to the kids at the schools but let's get in there when they're eight or nine you know and of course the men's rights activists listening will go ah feminist propaganda they went to brainwash the young children And I'm really talking about the most simple level Mm. of giving young people the tools to critique gender stereotypes giving them the tools to be critical of online sources and to look for, you know, statistical backup for things that they hear online. You know, even things that simple could make a difference in how easily people can be sucked down these rabbit holes. But I think a lot of people have no idea how powerful they are. I think we sit here and talk about, you know, YouTube being a bit of a danger. And people are thinking, well, YouTube, you know, that's where I go for movie trailers and grumpy cat videos. If you're an adult listening, it's so easy to underestimate the sheer, muscle the power that this thing has because it is the by far the most used social media of young people it's by far the number one source young people go to for their news not their entertainment their news and if you look at the numbers 70% of the videos that anyone watches on YouTube are videos recommended by the algorithm that's how powerful the algorithm is people are watching more algorithmically chosen videos than anything else Then you look at the fact that there are more households, more people watching YouTube than households that own a television in the world, 85 billion. Then you look at the fact that 37 percent of all mobile traffic internationally is accounted for by YouTube. So if you put those two statistics together, a quarter of all mobile Internet traffic internationally is just people Mm. watching the videos that YouTube has chosen for them. I mean, that is massive. So at that point, what that algorithm is doing becomes so important. And report after report, there's a really good data and society report on this, has shown that YouTube is in the clutches of a kind of far right, extremist, misogynistic influencer network. And they use the algorithm very deliberately to pass an audience between their different networks, their channels. They use uh, a channel to kind of bolster and, and support another channel. And the way that they work is, with the grain of the algorithm. So it doesn't mean the algorithm set up to do that deliberately or that YouTube ever intended any of this, but it does mean that that's the result that we're seeing.
1: And YouTube's certainly not intervening when it happens.
2: There are, there are good examples of cases where activists have made it clear that there's an issue to YouTube and that there's a fix that would work, but they've chosen to um, privilege instead, to prioritise instead the kind of bottom line and the, um, the numbers of views and clicks and that kind of thing. There are so many examples, I think, of social media companies recognising that there are things that they could do. We live in a time when social media companies, the single most common thing they do is say, oh, but look at how huge this problem is, right? Like we care and we're trying and we are doing good things, but you've got to recognize this is, you know, this is huge. And you think, hang on a minute, your income is greater than a small Countries, like of course you could do this if you cared about it. You've got enough money to hire a hundred thousand human moderators today and train them properly mm-hmm. to do this by hand if your algorithms aren't up to the scratch yet. You know, the idea that this is something kind of that's just too difficult for these absolutely massive companies that are making so much money off all of us is just really sickening. And the trouble is when we don't hold them accountable, it means that their processes are able to be patchy and based entirely on covering themselves and and prioritizing their own reputation and the people who suffer the most from that are the people who experience the worst forms of abuse so what happens is they don't bring in a proper um, method or a proper kind of policy to deal with online abuse what that means is that a particular case of abuse will hit the headlines and when that happens as a journalist and I've been on both sides of this the person in the story and the journalist writing about it you ring up and you get through to the PR company that represents one of these social media platforms and they go oh give me the details give me the details and magically miraculously the next day it's all gone and they've taken it away so in the whitewashed kind of media story they don't look so bad but the trouble is who does the media write about those stories only get picked up generally speaking when it's a young preferably attractive white middle class already very privileged person usually a politician or a pop star who's experiencing the abuse in the first place so for those women there is this recourse that because of the privilege of that public Public platform that you're afforded because of those identities, you get this quick response from the social media company. But because it isn't done in any kind of systemic way, it means that if you're a woman of colour already statistically receiving far worse abuse, if you're a trans woman, if you're, a, as you said, a teenage girl, you know, who's not going to be on the front page of the paper, but receiving this mass abuse online, you're not going to mm-hmm. see the benefit of any of that action, because it's not systemic. So it basically just reinforces the problems we already have in these echo chambers that the voices that we're hearing and the voices that we don't and it makes it much more likely that the women who will be driven offline by this kind of abuse are women of color trans women disabled women they're receiving Mm. worse abuse and they're the voices we much more need to hear from whereas at least in a position like mine the abuse is bad but I'm incredibly privileged in that I have so much support if I talk about it people are going to listen and then the social media companies are going to do something about it so it's a kind of vicious circle I think
1: Can we just have a moment uh, peer-to-peer where we scream into the void at, at the situation as it is but also <laughs> at the incredible hypocrisy that we encounter daily doing this kind of work from men who on the one hand scream about free speech and on the other hand do everything they can to silence women? It's To, to me it's just... It comes back to that feeling of just being constantly gaslighted. And again, I, I agree with you, you know, you don't want to use that term too lightly, but I think that that's what it is, is that, you know, from girls going to school and hearing from their male peers, well, we're just superior to you. And then seeing other girls back that up because they've learned that, at least for now, coordinating with patriarchy is safer for them than challenging it. To then men online who troll women, who send them horrific death and rape threats and drive them offline, all of that designed to shut women up in an environment where men are also at the same time saying, well, we should be allowed to say whatever we want, what happened to freedom of speech and if you can't hack it, then, you know,
2: get off the bloody internet.
1: Like men are so sensitive and not in a good
2: way. (laughs) So true. We've actually just had a study that's been published here, where they um, looked at the kind of mental health and self esteem and self harm amongst teenage girls, and found that it's it's incredibly high and and much higher than it is for teenage boys. And they um, the kind of Mm, outcome of of this study has been to blame it on girls' social media use. So they've basically gone silly teenage girls, you know, doing all these selfies on Instagram. They're bringing it on themselves, and literally nobody in the context of this survey has gone um we know that one third of teenage girls in the uk experience sexual assault at school we know that there's a rape every day of term in a uk school and that's just the ones reported to the police so we're probably looking at at least 10 times that figure it's it's just it's unbelievable but it's backed up that attitude is backed up by the media and by you know politics and it's so difficult to fight against something when the whole system is working against you
1: I will be in the first line of people to put my hand up and say men are broken and we need something to help put them back together. And that need that you know that work has to come from men as well. But the system is broken, patriarchy is broken, patriarchy breaks men. Yeah. I I will not disagree with anyone who says that men are hurting. I get that. But the solution to men's hurt from so many of these misogynist groups is is to demonize, hurt, and harm women, and to blame us for it, rather than look to us as people who actually want to see them get better. Um, and one of the things that I find so frustrating is that within this narrative of men's strength and superiority, well, men are just—you know—we're we're always being told, "Well, men are just better at everything. That's why they—that's why they rule the world because we're just—they're just naturally superior." We're also being told, well, men are suffering. Men are suffering so much and it's you women who've done it to them. So which is it? It's like mm-hmm. no matter, they, it's the constantly shifting goalposts that is so so difficult to, to deal with. And also, as you say, we know that, I mean, I know that you cite the statistic in your book that men are three times more likely to end, the, end their lives by suicide, but we also know that women and girls are three times more likely than that to make an attempt on their own life. And no one seems to care about the significant layers at play there that contribute to girls wanting to self-harm and carrying out self-harm. I mean, there's a group, you mention it in your book, Bloke's Advice, and they, they met with Pauline Hanson, who is obviously one of our most reprehensible politicians here, who is doing significantly dangerous work by bringing the narratives of men's rights activists into the parliament. Um, but Bloke's Advice is a group that, I did a lot of expose on a few years ago because there was just horrific misogyny abounding in there, you know, rape memes, pedophile memes, domestic abuse memes, you know, all that kind of good funny comedy stuff. And I remember when I was talking about it, when I was sharing these screenshots, because funnily enough, men who talk about free speech and everyone else kind of just getting over it and, you know, finding a sense of humour, et cetera, et cetera, never like other people to see what they say in private, do they? So when I exposed these these men, one of the counter arguments that I kept hearing was, you don't understand the good that these groups do. We've got men and blokes advice that are depressed. You know, some of them have been suicidal and they've reached out and they've all helped each other. And that's the importance of these groups. And again, I said, you know, I'm sure that you've got a familiar experience with this kind of thing. That's bloody wonderful. I'm so glad that you have online spaces and communities where you can connect as men and you can listen to each other and you can offer support and guidance. But why do those groups have to be formed you know wh- why does that support have to be mitigated by you bonding over the abuse of women? And and how can you How can you defend those spaces as a Mm -hmm. place for men to really work through the trauma of their mental health
2: while contributing exactly to the very things that cause women to end their lives? absolutely and and why should women be collateral damage because that's basically what you're saying this is a thing of value so the fact that you know women are being threatened with rape and abuse that should be something that we're prepared to accept as a kind of necessary byproduct which is the argument that we always Mm -hmm. hear right like you know this is just the women it's not so important let's focus on this thing i think the tragic thing about so many of these groups actually in the so-called manosphere is that they often have identified a real harm or a real point of of um a grievance, a real problem, essentially. So they identify issues like the male mental health crisis, or an issue um, like a particular kind of cancer that specifically affects men, or an issue around um, you know men in particular workplaces experiencing high rates of workplace injury, and then they turn around and they choose a target to blame for it and it's always the wrong target so they identify a real problem but then they place blame on women and feminists in particular and by doing that they kind of find us a, a, a target to kind of focus all this vitriol and ire at. But because feminists and women are not responsible for those issues, they're never doing anything that improves the problem at all. And for some of those men, that just means that they end up enmeshed in this kind of mire of depression and um, very, very negative and violent online hatred that kind of drags them down. And for a few of them, it means that they continue to profit from those men, as we've discussed, because of the very fact that they are enmeshed and they can't go anywhere. They're trapped and then they're kind of a captive audience. But if we were to focus on the actual sources of the issues that those men are describing, then we might get somewhere. And in many ways, I think that's the best way to undercut these groups is to actually focus on resolving the problems they tend to claim to care about, because they do nothing to actually deal with those problems. You know, these are groups that talk about Um, male domestic abuse survivors as, as a huge part of their rhetoric but instead of actually looking at issues to support male victims of violence, male victims of sexual violence who are overwhelmingly victims of male sexual violence, they spend their entire time and energy bringing lawsuits and protests to try and tear down a refuge for abused women. If we were to actually tackle male mental health, for example, if we were actually to provide better support within the community for adolescent mental health problems, if we were to tackle gender stereotypes in schools that lead to some of those problems in the first place, then we might actually be able to solve the problem. But these men don't want us to take any of those kind of measures because they're not actually interested in resolving the problems. they're just using them as a kind of stick to beat women with. Men are, as you say, are three hundred
1: times more likely to be targeted by rape to be, Victim survivors themselves of rape than they are ever to be accused falsely of having perpetrated
2: it. Yeah. So in the UK, a man is 270 times more likely to be raped himself than falsely accused. And most people are flabbergasted by that statistic. And I think what that tells you is that it's another one of those myths that has actually very quietly and very successfully penetrated Mm -hmm. our society. The idea that false allegations of rape are extremely common. And the reason why it's done that so successfully is because, again, these groups are aided and abetted by the mainstream media and public figures. So in one particular period, when the Crown Prosecution Service here was actually investigating false rape allegations to try and debunk this statistic, they discovered that in a period of about 18 months, there'd been 35 cases. And in many of those cases, it was very complex. So it was often, for example, someone who'd been seriously sexually assaulted, and the charge had been slightly wrong. So it was a vanishingly small number compared to the number of women raped during that period. But during that period as well, in a roughly comparable period, one of our biggest tabloid newspapers had published 54 headlines, Containing the phrase cried rape, so in other words, our very kind of lurid and controversial reporting on false rape allegations outstrips the number of actual false allegations almost by double so it's no surprise that people have this misconception about how common the problem is and and that works in favor of these communities so so much
1: and on that topic as well, um, I would just I just like to to also say this for the listeners and to anyone who may not be familiar with these statistics, who is listening, that when people talk about rape, uh, false rape allegations or false rape accusations, oftentimes what they what they and statistics themselves are not taking into account is that for something to be deemed "quote unquote" false, it just needs to have the charges be dropped, and that you know, and we know that many many victim survivors of rape and sexual assault drop charges or cease pursuing charges for numerous reasons the chief chiefly among them being that we live in a rape culture that does not provide space or support to victim survivors of rape and sexual assault but also because there may be deemed to be not enough evidence or because the police themselves may have insisted on dropping the charges so if you are having those conversations with people and they are insisting on bringing up this kind of furfy and the boogie monster of the false rape accuser, it's not just that the statistics are very, very small in that between 2 to 7% of all, you know, it, it's the same basically as false allegations any ac- across other any other crime. But, but there are mitigating circumstances that may be more likely to have that accusation declared Um Unpursuable, basically, which a lot of people interpret as being the same thing as false. And we know that that's not
2: true. Absolutely. That's so important to say. I mean, the statistics are just so stark when we're talking about false allegations in many cases we've just seen a big story here in the UK about the police dropping cases because they consider them weak and we have a situation here where in 2019 there were 55,259 rapes reported to the police and they prosecuted 2,100 of them and there were 1,439 convictions so, if you want to talk about a kind of real issue in terms of numbers, like that's what we should be looking at. And we don't talk about false allegations in relation to any other crime in the same way. If we're speaking about victims of burglary, we don't say, hey, on our biggest broadcaster, let's get someone else on to come in and argue. Well, wait a minute, we should think about people who claim to be burgled and they actually haven't been in the context of this conversation. Because what that does is it undermines people, victim survivors. Mm -hmm. And it means that we have this idea that the numbers are skewed. And so... This is where the idea comes from, I think, that you know, Me Too's gone too far, people are making false things up, men are losing their jobs all over the place, and a lot of people genuinely believe that because we've got this kind of mainstream media pushing that narrative because they want the controversy and the killig bait of a debate, when it's so irresponsible as simply as bad reporting. Because if you look at the numbers, you've got 12 million women in the first four months alone of the resurgence of the Me Too movement who shared their stories of abuse, of sexual violence, of workplace discrimination. You've got around 200 men in total estimated by the New York Times to have faced any kind of consequences or sanctions as a result of allegations that came out of the Me Too movement. So just look at those numbers. You've got 200 men facing any consequences, over 12 million women who've experienced abuse the idea that this is swung in the other direction and that's before you recognize Mm. that most of those the vast majority of those 200 face some minor professional consequences which were often then kind of taken away down the line we're not even talking about men facing actual legal action for what they've done And the numbers, again, just completely debunk this idea that it's one woman making up a completely false story and employers are acting to cut that man's job without any kind of due process. In that New York Times investigation, there were almost a 1000 women. In other words, for every one man who had said who who had faced any consequences, there had to be over four female accusers on average before that action was taken, because we don't believe women because we don't take them seriously. So it's at the same at the same time as telling women constantly
1: that they need to be on guard at all times because the world is dangerous. Right,
2: which is another thing that statistically makes no sense because you're safer statistically in an alleyway at two o'clock in the morning in a short skirt drunk with your knickers around your head. All the things that women are told, if we don't do them, we will just keep ourselves safe from rape. Then you are at home in your pajamas Mm. in your own bed because 80% of rapists Mm. already know the perpetrator. It's a colleague, a friend, a partner, a husband, a boyfriend. So it's all, it's gas. it comes back to gaslighting really, doesn't it? It comes back full circle to the beginning of our conversation that there are these enormous harms And yet we're living in a world that tells us it's really our own fault. We are the ones that have the power to stop it. And actually, shouldn't we be thinking about poor men instead?
1: Mm. I want to finish with two points and or two questions, really. The first is when I was writing Boys Will Be Boys, um, I appreciate that for you, the process of writing this book must have been incredibly toxic for your mental health because it's very difficult to stay in those environments for the length of time that it takes to write a book and not be impacted or affected in some way. One of the things that I came away with was a really dark and desolate realization that it's not just that people don't believe that rape and sexual assault happens. They just don't believe that all of the examples they have of it happening are actually rape or sexual assault because they may like the men who perpetrated it or they may have done something like that themselves or they just don't want to live in a world where they can say, yes, men do terrible things because, you know, they imagine that it's just shadows that peel out of the wall and that they're responsible for all of the harm that's done to women, not real life flesh and blood men. And one um, case in particular that I think of often is Chet Evans, who was a soccer player in the UK who was convicted of sexual assault, rape, uh, rape rape or sexual assault, went to jail and then appealed his conviction afterwards and had it overturned. When I look at the facts of that case, I don't see how anyone, even people who are staunchly saying that's not rape or sexual assault or he didn't do it, which I think is bullshit. But I don't see how anyone can look at the facts of that and what he did to that woman in that hotel room and say, well, that's fine. That's fine. That to me was one of the darkest things that I came away with was that people are altogether too willing to let not just humanity be stripped of women in experiencing and being subjected to these uh, violent acts, But to stand by as humanity is stripped from men and we expect nothing better Mm -hmm. from them than than that. So I'd be interested to know, Laura, on the the sort of the darker side of things, what was it that you came away most profoundly from writing this book that you feel like you'll never be able to shake off?
2: I think the thing that I wasn't prepared for in spite of, You know, I thought I was pretty prepared when I went into this because it would have been nearly 10 years of getting 200 death threats and rape threats a day and I thought I'd seen the worst of it. I think the thing that I found the most difficult was the number of pages on these sites that are explicitly devoted to victims who have been raped or murdered by these men and just to absolutely pouring out hatred of them. So the example that really kind of broke me I think about halfway through the research process there was a mass shooting event and um, it had been alleged by a number of the pupils it was a school shooting that um, the motivation had been that the killer had been kind of stalking a girl at the school or that, that she'd kind of spurned his advances and I don't know to what extent that was the case or that that was true and I but there was this specific incel site that was obsessed with the idea that they hoped that he'd raped her before he murdered her so that she would die knowing that the man that she'd rejected had been inside her. That was how they described it. And it was something that my, my editor thought we shouldn't put in the book because she thought it was just too sickening a thing to repeat and, and that it would just be too difficult to read but for me, it just, it really represented, it's kind of exactly what you've just said, really. It, it wasn't in doubt that this thing had happened. It was that this woman had been murdered and they still wanted to pour more hate on her. Like the, the the extent of the hatred of women could be so great that you could be prepared to engage in this kind of mass act of of pouring vitriol on someone who was already dead at the hands of, of a member of these communities, And I think that was a low Mm. point for me in terms of just realising what we're up against, you know, just how bad it is. Um, Mm. I think the the young age of the people who are coming into contact with these communities and the organised nature with which they're targeting them was the other thing that I really came away feeling really distressed about. Because it is so deliberate. They are going to places where young people are. They're not waiting for young people to stumble into the kind of spider's web of incel communities. Many of the young people who end up taking on this ideology wouldn't necessarily know the word incel. They're so much cleverer than that. It's not about boys becoming members of these groups or going looking for them. They are deliberately and very kind of with laser-like precision, targeting gaming chat rooms, gaming channels, um, strategy chat rooms for massive multiplayer online games. They might be speaking over the headset to a boy who's at home in the UK, looks like he's just on his own playing a game to his parent, but he's actually connected to other players online. Um, or they're targeting things like bodybuilding forums, which at first I found really confusing. Why are all these posts about incel stuff some of the most popular posts on a bodybuilding forum? And then I looked into it more and realized that the vast majority of the members of this bodybuilding forum were young teenage boys. And if you are looking for the teenage boys who are most likely to be vulnerable to these ideologies, you found them, right? The boys who are most concerned with stereotypical projections of masculinity. And I think realising that and seeing these men describe internet memes and funny jokes as adding cherry flavour to children's medicine, as a specific conduit to try and smuggle this radicalization into these boys' lives, and explicitly seeing misogynistic extremism as a slipway to white supremacy. They specifically talk about the fact that they think misogyny will be a more palatable first step for teenage boys, and they use it very deliberately as a way to then send them down a white nationalist and then a white supremacist pathway. I think for me that was what made me feel quite overwhelmed. This isn't just something that's out there and it's happening. It's huge. It's organised. It's worse than you could imagine and it's targeting boys ruthlessly.
1: I think it's really important for people to know that when you collate information like this, as you've done, when you perform a service in aid of... Shining a light onto these communities, and and you've been at the forefront there, wading through the muck of it. That it's not fair for you to necessarily hold on to all of that trauma yourself. That I think that it's I think that we bear a, a collective responsibility as an audience and as readers and as people who hopefully want to change the world to actually truly understand what it is that you've been through, collecting that information. Uh, so thank you for sharing that. On a final note and hopefully a more uplifting one, I would love to know what you,
2: what hopefulness you walked away from after writing mm-hmm. this book. When you consider what we've talked about today and when you consider how entrenched those ideas are amongst teenage boys, and I would say that, of course, again, we're not generalizing. I'm meeting loads of teenage boys who are increasingly feminist and want to help. I'm not saying all teenage boys. But when you consider how entrenched those ideas are, the teenage girls who are faced with them are utterly, utterly inspiring. Their courage and their humor and their innovation And their bravery in standing up to it is absolutely, without a doubt, the thing that keeps me going, that gives me strength and hope for the future. Because if you imagine being faced with that, I mean, when I was at school, it was bad enough. But the idea of being at school now alongside boys who are being kind of almost having this drip fed to them, this kind of extreme misogyny, this content, and having to be the girl that's in the classroom dealing with that, I mean, if you stop for a moment to really think about what that must be like, or to be the girl who dared to say that maternity leave should be a thing. And then she gets told that she's biologically genetically inferior. And (laughs) in the face of that, these girls who ironically are being denounced as a group of of snowflakes, as a snowflake generation who, you know, Mm -hmm. are just all obsessed with victim culture. Their strength is steely. It's incredible. And they are so great at taking things into their own hands, whether it's, you know, the girls at a school in the States who were told that they they weren't allowed to wear yoga pants because they might distract the boys. And they came to school with placards the next day. They picketed saying, um, are my pants lowering your test scores? Or, you know, whether it's the girls in one of the schools I visited where um, they'd seen the boys on social media kind of mouthing off about the presentation before I arrived and planning the best ways to disrupt it. And instead of kind of telling a teacher or raising it, what they chose to do was to leave their final lesson a few minutes early to come to the auditorium and to space themselves out in every other seat throughout the hall so that when the boys arrived, they had to sit between two girls, every single one of them. And it just took away that sense of a kind of dissenting block and the peer pressure of the boys actually to respond in that way to the talk. And it was so clever and so sharp and so simple. and, And that was the way that they chose to take it into their own hands. They didn't look for help. They dealt with it themselves. There was one school i visited where the girls had been walking into the classrooms and boys were shouting out a number out of 10 for them to rate them as they walked in but it was actually three numbers every girl would come in and they would go seven two four and they would be rating their faces their breasts and their bums and these girls were perhaps 12 years old and being dehumanized to that extent publicly in their lessons in their education environment and they responded by asking me to come in and talk to the other people in their school and when i came in i thought you know they might not want anyone to know it was them that asked me to come in because that's quite common when you go into a school that that no one wants to be associated with it because that's how bad the backlash is and these girls there were maybe five or six of them and they were linked they were sitting in the front row with their arms linked and they were all wearing t-shirts and they gave me a t-shirt and then they made all the boys sign a pledge about sexual harassment as they left the hall And at the end of that day, I took the T-shirt off when I was going to bed and I only realized at that point when I got home that on the back, it said, I am 10 out of 10. And it it was just this moment of being like, yeah, these girls have got this, like they're not taking it lying down Mm. in spite of everything that they're up against. And, Mm. you know, they will be the future. And there were boys with them, there were these three boys that came up after the end of a talk and they waited until everyone else had left the hall because it's obviously the peer pressure for boys not to stand up to this stuff. And they came up to him and they kind of whispered, we were thinking about starting a feminist society and we were just wondering, and then they kind of looked at each other and they went, are we allowed? (laughs) It was just so great. So there is hope, you know, we're seeing so many more male role models speaking out about this stuff it is shifting, it will shift, but it won't shift on its own. And that's this attitude that we're so often told to sit down, shut up and wait. You don't know how good you have it. I was told by a very important uh, politician in the UK that I was very glass half empty and I sounded really negative after being invited to speak to MPs about sexism and gender inequality. And didn't I know that girls these days have never had it so good? And if we were just patient, things had already got better and they would continue. And that attitude suggests that things are getting better on their own And it erases the work of Mm. of thousands of women over generations to keep pushing it on. So, you know, we can't just sit back, but we will get there.
1: Well, and also, what's the
2: gender makeup of (laughs) Britain? Just managed to reach a third with great celebration. Right. (laughs) Great. Well,
1: clap, clap, clap that, you know, it's just magically sorted itself out. Uh, Look, I I think that that's a really wonderful note to end on because I completely agree with you. I look at, yes, there are some young girls who are yet to be awakened to patriarchy and their power to rise up against it, but that's okay because they'll get there and we'll be, we'll be waiting for them when they're here, ready to join us. But there are so many inspiring young girls and women who are just 20 billion times far ahead on their journey at their age than I could have ever hoped to have been. And it really does give me a lot of confidence for the future that, you know, things can change. Boys and men want something better for themselves too. I think that it's one of the saddest things for me is that when you're doing this work and I'm sure you have this experience too that as as much as I don't want to engage with people who you know accuse me of being a man hater or whatever I will say to you that one of the saddest parts about that is that I do this work because I love men as well you know and I love I love my son I love that I love thinking about what men could be there is it's hard for me to read even the chapter about incels in as like horrific as it is and to not think what was the point where something went wrong for them. I think that approaching things with empathy and with the desire to change and grow together as a community is so powerful and that's what I see young girls being really, really willing to do. And, you know, if you have to expose the most awful parts of society in order to do that, then that's what you need to do. So on that note, I'd really like to say thank you so much for wading into this topic. Thank you for your service over the years for feminism and for girls and women and for boys and men too. And thank you for getting up every day and continuing to do the work even though you have so many forces trying to stop you. And likewise, right back at you. It's been really wonderful to speak to you. Your book is Men Who Hate Women. It's out now. People can buy it from all good bookstores. You're also going to be speaking on live stream at the All About Women Festival, which I will share the details of the particular date, but that will be accessible, obviously, uh, remotely because that's the world that we live in now. And I, I just hope, I really, really hope that you've been able to find a soft space to land after writing this because you deserve it for sure. Thank you. You've been listening to the Big Sister Hotline, a weekly advice podcast that delivers no nonsense words with love from the kind of people you know have your back, your big sisters. If you have a question, you can submit it to bigsisterhotline at gmail.com. And don't worry, all submissions are treated as totally anonymous. We're big sisters and we've got your back. If you'd like to support the ongoing making of this podcast, you can find me on Patreon under the username Clementine Ford. My guest this week has been Laura Bates, writer, activist, and author of the brand new book Men Who Hate Women. It is a difficult read, but it's a necessary one, and I would love for you all to get it. Please ask the men in your lives to read it and discuss it with them. It is essential that we have these conversations. Remember, there's no topic too thorny and no question too weird for the Big Sister Hotline. We're here for all the questions you don't want to ask your therapist, especially now that it has to be over Zoom. So contact us instead. The Big Sister Hotline. The phone lines